0: Welcome to Straight Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joey Geary with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, we welcome Dr. Sean H. to the program. Sean received his PhD from the University of Tennessee in computer engineering. As a researcher at our national laboratory, he helps lead research at the intersection of machine learning and security. He slings code, mentors students, and asks tough questions of data. Uh, we'll get into more of uh, your bio, Sean, in just a moment. But first, let's say welcome, uh, Sean, to the podcast.
1: Uh, thank you, Joe. Yes, uh, glad to be here and looking forward to the discussion.
0: All right. And Ken, we have had uh, many of our visiting scholars on the podcast. so. Uh, for people who are new or ha- don't recall some of these interviews, tell us what they can look forward to.
2: Well, today, uh, Sh- Sean is our guest. And of course, uh, he has a fascinating background. I I benefited yesterday from interviewing him uh, in another context for uh, the Visiting Scholar program. So I, w- I have lots of questions about artificial intelligence, but I thought a good place to begin, Sean, is maybe asking you to tell us a little bit about your faith journey. And I know from talking with you that some very significant Christian books have played a a real role in your life. So uh, our uh, listeners are very bookish people. So tell us a little bit about your your faith journey.
1: Yeah, thanks, Ken. So uh, I grew up in a Christian household. So I would say I've been Saved since I was a wee lad, but um, in terms of my faith journey, I do think that in a way it could be mapped out in books. So when I was young, I would say uh, somewhere between eight and twelve, I read the Narnia, the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, and absolutely loved them. And for me, uh, looking back retrospectively. The Chronicles of Narnia gave me, um, they sanctified my imagination is probably the popular phrase that you would hear used. And they actually prepared me in high school uh, for reading books like Mere Christianity and The Great Divorce, because even though I was Christian, Ken, uh, as, a, as a kid, I spent most of my time doing what all kids do, uh, playing sports, playing video games, uh, getting my schoolwork done, and, uh, trying to obey my parents, and all, all of those great things that children do, but I would say that until I read uh, Mere Christianity, God was not really at the center of my life. And so even though I, yeah, I believe I was saved and I knew the Lord, uh, most of my time was still spent on me. And so one thing when I was 15 that reading Mere Christianity did is uh, some of the quotes that C.S. Lewis had, such as uh, God doesn't love us because we're good. He makes us good because he loves us yeah. or um he said something along the lines of, you can't see someone above you if you're always looking down. Wow. Um, and I was a pretty good kid. So, you know, I always felt I got good grades. I didn't do drugs. I didn't hang out with the bad kids. So I, you know, and so some of those things just helped humble me and helped me see that I really needed to put God at the center of my life. And I would, that took my sanctified imagination and it helped me to kick in my will and start really trying to seek God. And so That can, in high school, after reading Lewis, is when I actually started to really read the Bible. Mm. And for the the rest of my life, still today, I I would say Bible plus plus. I love the scriptures. I love books about the scriptures, digging into the scriptures. And then I spent uh, the rest of my life, I actually went to seminary uh, between my undergraduate and graduate work. So I spent the rest of my life just digging into scripture, love Paul's letters, and uh, kind of around the same time, started reading some other other books, like uh, God Smuggler, mm-hmm. um, The Practice of the Presence of God, The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, mm-hmm. and just trying to really dig in and figure out, I mean, these are all kind of popular level books, but to begin to figure out what does it mean to really walk with this living God who I, who I believe in and who I want to love and obey more.
2: Well, that's a very rich background, and and uh, wonderful to hear. Uh, I know we have questions for you today about uh, artificial intelligence, but I thought one question I'd like to ask you as well is, um, you know, you're coming from a, a computer background. What would you say? What what hits you the strongest in terms of uh, maybe the maybe the best argument or the piece of evidence that pushes you and, and, and gives you a, a context of Christianity being true, God, the, God, the theistic God existing and Christianity being true, what would you say the strongest argument is for you?
1: Thanks, Ken. Uh, yeah, so I would say it's two things. Um, in terms of from the perspective of reason or rationality, I would say there is no single argument that would be a a defeater against atheism or um, agnosticism. What I would say is that when I take the life of Jesus and I take the fundamental claims of Christianity and the nature of the universe, that it is rational, that it is rooted in natural law, and then you put the life of Christ, his holiness, his purity, his truth together with the nature of the world and its rationality. Um, and the way that the Bible itself talks about humanity um, being so accurate, um, as uh, Malcolm Muggridge once said, the original sin is the most intellectually resisted doctrine, yet it's the most verifiable. (laughs) Humans mess up a lot, and the Mm -hmm. Bible has a very realistic perspective on humanity. And so I think when you take those together, the life of Jesus, the nature of the world, that it's based on rational laws, and then the Bible's description of the human heart, for me, those together make uh, a very strong case for the Christian faith, Ken. And then Secondly, just my experience of Jesus, because I remember uh, Ken, when I was in high school, and I was reading Lewis, um, there was a particular moment when I saw a homeless man walking across a bridge. And as I said, my life had been very self focused. And in my heart, Ken, I I just, I felt so much love. I I didn't meet him. I didn't know his name. I was driving under the underpass. But it At that moment, I felt prayer like move in my heart Mm. for this man I had never met. And that's really, I would say, when I began to pray more intentionally. And that work of the Holy Spirit in my heart together with those rational arguments to me, just uh, for me personally, makes an undeniable case uh, for the Christian faith.
2: Very good. I like to say that sin is an equal opportunity employer. It uh, affects all (laughs) of us. Well, let me ask you the flip side of that question, Sean. Um, what would you, what do you view as maybe the biggest challenge to a a person holding the Christian worldview?
1: Yes, Ken. So I think it would be the hiddenness of God. Um, some people might say it's suffering, but I I personally think if you put together the fact that the God of the universe in Christianity suffered Himself for us. And that, as Paul says in Romans eight, that the suffering, the uh, sufferings of this world are nothing compared to the glory that w- will be revealed to us. And as C.S. Lewis says, uh, no, no answer to the problem of pain uh, that does not include heaven is a Christian answer. So, I, for me, the reality of heaven and of Jesus help with the problem of suffering, but the hiddenness of God is difficult. Ken. Um, Because we have unbelieving friends and I just wish that God would just get a hold of their heart and shout at them and speak to them so that they could know the love of Christ. But you don't see that. And uh, even in my own life, I think um, wrestling with how do you know the will of God? And I have an answer for that now or or a way that works for me. And I have an understanding of that, but it's not easy to figure out why God is so hard to get a hold of sometimes.
2: Yeah. Well, Joe and Dave, I'd like you to jump in here a little bit, and I, I'm sure you have questions for Sean.
3: Uh, just on
2: that <clears throat>
3: last issue, uh, Ken, you have made the point uh, in various venues in the past that there's this question of, is it God who is hidden or is it men who are blind? And is the problem on God's side or the problem on men's side? And I guess I've kind of concluded, partly with with some of the comments you've made, Ken, that the problem isn't that God hasn't revealed himself. It's just that men don't want to see it. And, and that's why I always come across that scripture uh, that uh, in John where Jesus says that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. I would just be curious to know... Uh, sean how you kind of reflect on that particular
0: issue
1: yeah thanks dave so i, I love and i'm sure ken has quoted this but i love pascal's uh, quote in his book pensies he says uh, god gives exactly the right amount of light if he gave less even the righteous would be unable to find him and their will would be thwarted if he gave more even the wicked would find him against their will thus he respects and fulfills the will of all people. If he gave more light, the righteous would not learn humility, for they would know too much. If he gave less light, the wicked would not be responsible for their wickedness, for they would know too little. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's an excellent response, but I think you have to combine that idea that God has given us uh, from Pascal, that God has given us the exact right amount of revelation of himself, that both the righteous and the wicked can be held accountable, and find God with the reality that God judges people based on their hearts. So Paul says, I believe it's in Romans, that from the time of Adam until Moses, there was no law, Um, but there was still sin, and God still had a way of judging people before Jesus, before the law, because he knew their hearts, and it says in multiple places in the scriptures will be judged according to the according to the secret thoughts of our hearts. And one of the big mistakes, uh Dave, that I think people make is they think that when we're judged, we're going to be judged by a doctrinal statements and some angel is going to stand there and say you have not believed X Y and Z, therefore you are condemned. But what the Bible constantly says is that God is human. He's he, he's a being. He's not human. He's a being. Uh he's not a law. He's not He's not just an idea created by humans is what I'm trying to say, Dave. So God is a person and he knows every single human heart. And so when he judges somebody like Abraham, um, we have to trust the God of all the earth will do what is right. And what helps me with the problem of hiddenness, Dave, is combining Pascal's arguments with a trust in the God who gave his only son, on the cross so that we can have eternal life, that that God is going to be fair and good uh, to everyone, even those who have never heard of Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
0: I guess uh, what I would ask, Sean, is uh, I noticed that uh, you work with students, you mentor them. Uh, Does your mentoring involve uh, Christian-type mentoring, or are you talking about uh, in their areas of study?
1: Well, of course, at, uh, at my workplace, uh, it is uh, professional mentoring. So in their yeah. area of study, I do work uh, with, uh, I guess, work with, serve with uh, my church and mm-hmm. uh, mentor students there as well, though. And, and I love to have discussions about Jesus outside work or school. Whenever the topic comes up, um, I'm always open at whatever level. Yeah.
0: What, what are they concerned about?
1: wow. It it always depends on the person, doesn't it? So I remember at my old job, not my current job, but uh, I worked at an air force base and there was a a Hindu young man who sat next to me and he wanted me to read his version of the Hindu scriptures, which was uh, his version of Hinduism was kind of a more recent uh, from the 16, 1700s. And so he asked me some questions about the Bible and I asked him some questions about his faith. And we just had a discussion, um, Joe. And I, I think that's really for me the most fruitful thing is just with that individual person what are their questions um and and in this case he had questions like why do some christians say that girls uh can't wear pants (laughs) it's a very funny like He's trying to figure out. So I had to explain some people build fences around the law because they don't want to transgress the law. So they build extra fences that are legalistic. And we had that discussion about legalism and the difference between that and the heart of the law. Uh, But his questions were extremely different from my students. Uh, I'm I'm in Tennessee, I'm in the Bible Belt. So most of the students I have, um, not everyone in Tennessee, but the students I have don't really have. Really strong difficulties with being Christian. They have questions about how to be Christian. Uh, you know, when my friends are all not being Christian, how do I stand up for my faith and love Jesus and live a pure life and and walk in the truth? And so, um, you know, I think it just depends. Uh, in terms of our generation, uh, I could I can't speak from experience. I think certainly gender and sexuality and um, race and um, social justice. I think from what I hear, those are the big topics, but mm-hmm. I have not had to deal with those directly much with uh, my students, at least yet. Yeah. Good. Sean, i w
2: I'd like to give you an opportunity to talk to us a little bit about artificial intelligence. And uh, as we talked uh, on a previous uh, interview, um, Maybe you could begin by addressing the question that, that lots of people ask. And, and that is, will do you think artificial intelligence uh, or those who are involved in it will actually be able to produce uh, sentience, uh, a product that actually thinks? And maybe a, a backdrop of that question is, what are what are the most important questions? Maybe that Christians need to know about artificial
1: intelligence. That's a great question, Ken. And my answer to this is always uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, the The problem with artificial intelligence uh, in terms of creating a what's called a general artificial intelligence um, that actually is capable of thinking the way that humans think, uh, is that we simply don't have the technology right now, Ken. So, Most of what you see in AI are algorithms trained on large amounts of data, because as as many of your viewers probably know, data is the gasoline that drives machine learning and artificial intelligence. So the reason there's been this huge boom in AI in the last 20 years, is that suddenly we had computers that could store way more information. And with everyone on the internet and with their phones, we had all this data being sucked up um, into these data warehouses. And this large amount of data allowed us to utilize um, these algorithms, these machine learning algorithms that have been around since the seventies, Ken. But the fact that we just had more data and better uh, computational resources allowed us to use these to do new and more powerful things like language processing, uh, translation of image recognition, uh, self-driving cars, all of those things are reliance on kind of this new, uh, new access to data and uh, better computational resources. But what's lacking there, Ken, is the type of neural network that you and I have in our brain. So the the neurons in our brain, are actually, the the connections between the neurons are actually slower than silicon. So your computer transmits faster than your brain, yet your brain is far more interconnected. And as a result of the way that our brains are wired together and the sheer number of neurons, they can do things that none of these computers, uh, classical computers can do. And so to this point, Ken, we just don't have the technology Um, to create a being that thinks. And honestly, uh, recently there was something created called DishBrain. And what the company that created DishBrain did is they took um, some 800,000 brain cells and they stuck them in a Petri dish and then they hooked them up to uh, some electrodes and they were able to teach these brain cells to play the game of Pong. This is very recent news at this point. And the reason they did that is because at least some people think that in order to create a general artificial intelligence, we're going to have to combine uh, silicon-based technology with biological technology, basically fusing brain cells or some other type of biological tissue with uh, more traditional technology.
2: Yeah, wow. Now, Google, uh, they've said, uh, you know, uh, they've said that maybe by 2050, there'll be a uh, We'll enter kind of a new era of science and technology, and maybe there'll be, it'll be possible to have a a brain computer interface. I mean, is this science fiction or is this something that is 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 it based in reality?
1: Yes, and so actually, we do need to draw a distinction between general artificial intelligence and a brain uh, computer interface. So. There are already two companies, the names are slipping my mind at the moment. There are already two companies that have created FDA approved uh, brain computer interfaces. So they take a chip, they open up your skull, they implant it in your brain. One of them uses a different method. I think it, I, I'm not a neurosurgeon, but they slide it through one of the veins or something along those lines. And so they don't actually have to stick a chip right into your brain. But th- this is, at this point, can it involves surgery. So it's dangerous. Um, And it's still in the testing process, but it is FDA approved. And if you look up these companies, these individuals with these brain implants can control their computer, they can move their mouse, they can type, they can do their work. Um, And, and so this is an amazing technology. And that is not science fiction. And so by 2050, I think it it is feasible, although I'm not an expert in this field. I, yeah. based on what I see, it is feasible that we will have much less invasive uh, brain-to-computer type of implants where you can interact with your world through your thoughts.
0: Wow, uh, Ken, I have a question here, Sean, since, or Ken, since you mentioned uh, Google, uh, Sean, you've written a number of uh, Voices blog articles for RTB. Uh, One of your recent ones concerned this um, creation by a Google engineer, Uh, I think it's called LAMDA. Uh, You can explain that in a moment. But what struck me and probably what people may have seen or heard about is that this this, uh, model uh, replied to a question, uh, are you a person? And it said, absolutely. I want everyone to understand that I am, in fact, a person. That sounds compelling, uh, so what do we what do we make of that?
1: Yes, that is a great question, Joe. So it, it turns out that this is a, an illusion, but what, what happened is that one of Google's engineers named Blake Lemoine um, believed that their large language model called Lambda, and a large language model is called large because it's trained on a lot of data, petabytes of data, I believe, plus it has lots of parameters. It, Um, not exactly sure on the petabytes, (laughs) but it's a lot. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it's trained on a lot of data. So just sucking up, you know, all this data off the internet using tons of features. Um, and then it's trained on that. So it's called a large language model. And these large language models are basically stochastic parrots. So what you need to understand is that all that these models are doing is they're looking at all of their input data that they've been trained on, like all of these sentences, all of these essays, all of these YouTube videos, Twitter, whatever they have, all this language input. And then they're parodying that when they produce the output. So I have actually used uh, another large language model produced by OpenAI. And I asked it the same question, are you sentient, are you a person? And this is what I mean by stochastic. The first time i asked it are you a person it said yes the second time i asked it it said maybe <laughs> mm. <laughs> the third time i asked it it said no and then it said yes again a few times in a row so mm. stochastic means that you don't get the same answer every time whereas if you ask it so that it's just parroting from the data it's been trained on it's not truly thinking and this is the danger it's called the eliza effect. And the Eliza effect means that when we as humans uh, see language, we, we project human thinking behind the language. So even if there's no thinking going on, like if we're talking to a chat bot that's been hard-coded and all the responses are exactly what it's told to say, it's not thinking, it's not doing any kind of uh, mathematics or statistics, it's just telling you the same thing, we can impute reason where there is no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's called the Eliza effect. So in, in reality, these chat bots, these large language models, are, they're stochastic parents and they are not an example of artificial general intelligence.
0: Well, uh, here's a related question. Uh, let's say people are really looking to AI to help solve things like law enforcement issues or even self-driving cars. If they're going through, if you ask them or give them the same set of data, and they make a mistake, uh, could, could that have repercussions uh, down the line? Or, or is that apples and oranges, what I'm talking about?
1: Oh, well, of course. So though, there was one guy riding in a Tesla, and Tesla, um, this was a while back, but there was a white truck and the AI algorithm in the Tesla thought the white truck was the sky. And so it just kept going and mm-hmm. the man died. So um, mm-hmm. that's called reliability. Reliability, um, your your algorithms need to be reliable. And the hardest thing, uh, if you're going to use the example of self driving cars, is there are a lot of edge cases. So let's say that you see a car that's flipped over on its back after an accident. That's not something you normally see, but it's really important that your algorithm knows what that is whenever it happens so it can get out of the way. Um, And so Reliability is a huge issue, and if you're talking about deciding whether or not someone gets parole from prison, um, the issue there is bias, because historically, African Americans have been uh, unjustly denied pr- or parole or maybe rearrested at higher rates uh, due to bias on hu- in humans rather than uh, the reality of what's going on, and so that bias in the data can actually get into the algorithm. And so, if your training data has bias, that can also cause bias. So, let's say you want to get a house loan, uh, but it just turns out that people who lived in your neighborhood for the past 10 years, for some reason, all defaulted on their loans. And then the algorithm goes, Oh, you live in that neighborhood too. Don't give this guy a loan. Mm. You know, I mean, so. You, you gotta be, uh, they, they have to build in safety and reliability into the algorithms. And that's a huge ethical concern. In fact, there's a there's a large argument in the AI ethics community that general artificial intelligence is not the ethical concern we should be worried about right now. It's things like bias and safety that are the real issues that are gonna impact us, to, that are already impacting us and will impact us ever, even more in the near future. Mm,
3: wow, well, fascinating. You know, um... Now that we're on that subject of, of, uh, you know, how sentience, you know, how do you respond as a Christian? I know in our previous discussions of this, we've talked about the the image of God, that we are made in the image of God. And what does that mean? And, you know, our, our tendency is to think that when God created man, he put a spirit within man. And that's what gives him the sentient qualities and, of course, the qualities that make him be in the image of God. Uh, do you think that, that that is going to be the, the, the clincher, that's going to be the, the stop, as it were, to really ultimately making a sentient computer?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I think there's a lot of biblical nuance as well as uh, technological nuance here. And the first thing is right, the word ruach for spirit, it just means wind. And um, (laughs) even those people who would say that humans are, that God created us, that being in the image of God is mostly, has to do with our body and our minds. Um, And it's not necessarily that there's not, like the spirit's not the one doing most of the thinking or the driving or maybe there's not even an immaterial spirits that could be compatible with those scriptures. But for me, when, when I look at the new Testament and I see the way that Jesus uh, uses the word spirits and Paul and, you know, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Same thing to the thief on the cross. I just see a lot of evidence that we do have an immaterial part of us. And I don't understand what that means. Uh, but I think the question is uh, if we could ever replicate the way our brains work. And there was uh, a machine that could think like we do behave like we do. Um, Would it have a spirit? And and obviously the answer would be no, unless God gave it one. And my personal opinion, and this is just an opinion is I I don't think technologically we're going to get there anytime soon. Um, And if we do, I tend to think that humans are unique that we're the pinnacle of God's creation going back to Genesis Um, And I I don't tend to think that God would endow such a creation uh, with a spirit, uh, but I'm open to being wrong about that.
2: Mm -hmm. Sean, I, you know, um, one of my, uh, one of the philosophers I I greatly appreciate was Mortimer Adler, who was, uh, he was a leading American educator as well as a, a, a philosopher. And he kind of compared the human mind, the human soul, to both animals and machines. And he, he made that that very point, uh, kind of kind of building on the idea that that um, that to be made in the image of God seems to imply some kind of human exceptionalism. This is a question I asked you on a previous interview, and I, I I'd I'd love for you to share your answer with our listeners here on Straight Thinking, and that is, you know, I, I look around the landscape and I see brilliant people like yourself and many other people that are involved in the field of artificial intelligence. I wonder if, uh, if we were able to come up with uh, a product that actually thinks wouldn't that in some sense be a creation? Because think of all the intellectual firepower. I mean, this wouldn't be something that just kind of appeared from nowhere. It it would take the intellectual firepower of many people from many disciplines. So what's your thinking about that topic?
1: Yeah, Ken, that's a great point. And uh, as I said before, I think there are really two angles to that. One of them is that the fact that some scientists think to achieve artificial and general intelligence, we're going to have to use brain cells to do it, just points to how amazing God's creation is in the first place and how much trouble we're having replicating it. Um, and then the second point is the argument from design. Um, in my opinion, of course, it is uh, it is a powerful argument that you know just because we create artificial general intelligence, that actually points to God instead of us being produced by random, semi-random processes, right? And I, I think the reason a lot of uh, si- uh, people struggle is that um, there are random, apparently random processes that produce order, but they they're governed by natural laws. And so I think the confusion comes in when you say. You know, we can get, we can seem to get order out of something semi-random. So like the way that ants search, they follow a pheromone in order to search, um, you know, for food and they can follow the other ants. And it actually appears to create these meta level patterns, but really it's, it's at a micro level. It's more random and it's less of a big pattern, but the big pattern comes out of all the tiny patterns. And there are a lot of things like that in nature where it looks like it has order And it does have order, but maybe at a, at a smaller level, it doesn't come from order. And so a lot of people go, well, it's the same with humans, but I think what people are missing is that that all goes back to natural laws and those, those things all had to come from somewhere. Right. Uh, So, but I I understand why some people do struggle with the argument from design, but I also do think it's a powerful argument.
2: Well, very good. I I want to kind of uh, shift gears here a little bit, Sean. I, um, Again, we had a previous interview where we talked a little bit about Charles Darwin and a mentor that he had. And I was really fascinated and really impressed by your description of of uh, Darwin's relationship with a man named Henslow. Tell us a little bit about uh, Darwin and this mentor and, and what it meant in what it might mean to us in terms of kind of Christian apologetics.
1: Yes, Ken. So John Stevens Henslow was a professor of botany at Cambridge at the time when Darwin showed up, and Henslow was famous for his drawings and his field expeditions Um, And he would take his students out and do these immaculate drawings uh, of the different plants and animals. If the listeners get a chance to look them up, you should look at some of the drawings. They're really cool, really fantastic. Uh, But he he was just an excellent scientist, very famous in his field. Um, And I think what impresses me so much about Hinslow is that he's both an excellent scientist and he has excellent character in the way that he loves other people and presents his faith even with those with whom he disagrees. So throughout, uh, he became Darwin's mentor at Cambridge and he remained Darwin's mentor for his entire life until he died. Even though Darwin fundamentally disagreed with him on many issues as they grew, like Darwin became more agnostic, whereas Hinslow remained a devout Christian. In fact, Ken, Hinslow left his post at Cambridge to become a minister um, at his small country parish and that was his decision of how to use the later portion of his life. He helped, and it, and this is such a cool story, Ken, if the viewers can read it, I just love it. He went to this little country parish. Many of the parishioners were getting drunk during the day. They didn't have work, they weren't educated. And so he gave them land in the parish to farm. He taught them how to farm. He, t- he helped them tend their crops to get them off the alcohol. He gave clothing to their children. His wife ran programs for the women and the families. And he really invested in this parish. In fact, he started a school where he required children before they could come to this school to memorize Latin names for plants and insects before they could even start. And these little kids were learning these huge Latin names um, just to be in his class. And some of these uh students can from this tiny little country parish went on to go to you know Cambridge, Oxford. To, to be tutors to to rich children and to get really good jobs. And and so I think that's part of Hinslow's legacy that's so amazing is even though he was so intelligent and so connected in the world, he was so humble and loved others so much. And one thing that, you know, Darwin just has so many words to say, if you get to read uh, the Henslow biography about Henslow's character. So here's just one for you. Uh, You can read the article for more. But he says, during the years when I associated with Professor Henslow, this is straight from Darwin's mouth, I never once saw his temper even ruffled. He never took an ill-natured view of anyone's character, though very far from blind to the foibles of others a man must have been blind not to have perceived that beneath this placid exterior, there was a vigorous and determined will. When principle came into play, no power on earth could have turned him one hair's breadth." Mm. Um, And that's just one quote from Darwin. But Darwin felt that Hinslow was not willing to look at the evidence and Hinslow felt that Darwin was making assumptions. And so when it came to the issue of evolution, they just disagreed. Darwin thought, Hinslow, you're just not willing to open your eyes. And Henslow thought, Darwin, you're not leaving room for God's intervention in history, and you're making too many assumptions. But even though they had those disagreements, they still maintained a healthy relationship, and uh, Darwin still had great respect for Henslow.
2: I just think that's such a fascinating story, and it, it, it makes me think about my own experiences in interacting with non-Christians. It also makes me think about my many years of teaching uh, Christian apologetics, that it's very easy, and and I'm a good example of it, It, it's very easy to kind of gravitate very quickly toward arguments and reason and evidence and facts, and maybe uh, fail to appreciate that your personal character Play such a central role in in who you are, and I mean, I have friendships with people who are philosophical naturalists, and I want to retain that friendship. I we vigorously disagree, we clash on ideas, but I I appreciate them, and I I want to convey to them that hey, even though I'm a Christian and you're not, I can learn from you. Uh, I respect you, and. Often it's often there seems to be, Sean, and I wonder if you see this in your own experience, that um, ideas come quickly to people who are cerebral, but Christian character, that is such a critical feature as well.
1: Oh, it certainly can. Um, and I think to your point there, there, if your viewers have never heard of it, there's something called the Engelskell, and it is a tool for evangelism. And I love it because it has four stages of spiritual growth. The first one is you're very far from God. And it gives you suggestions for how to reach out to people who are in each of these stages. And the first suggestion for someone who's completely far away from God is they just need to learn to trust a Christian. They just need to learn that there's a Christian who's nice. <laughs> that's, that's not going <laughs> to preach at them. That's not going to condemn them. That's not going to cut them down. That's going to care about them when they really need help. Um, and then it, the English skill kind of has four stages. So I recommend that to anyone who wants to know how can I love my unbelieving friends well. Uh, it really has, I think it's really well thought out and has good suggestions, but I totally agree, uh, Ken, that sometimes when you're an intellectual or an engineer and you have a, a temperament uh, that is maybe even prone to argument, <laughs> not, <laughs> not, not out of malice, but uh, you know i think all engineers and scientists when they feel that you have deduced incorrectly love just for the fun of it to get in there and and have the discussion <laughs> um, and i i'm i'm one myself but i do think as christians we have to sometimes as scientists and intellectuals uh, and abstract thinkers control our first instinct and think oh, is this what's necessary right now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or could this be left for another time
0: Uh, Sean, a a question along those lines. Uh, Since we have a lot of people who listen to this podcast and and who follow RTB, uh, they are engineers and scientists or they're oriented towards engineering and science and math in the STEM fields. Uh, What would you suggest by way of building a bridge to someone who believes that AI is the future? If you don't get on this bus, you're you're falling way behind and this is where we need to be. You Christians are kind of getting backwards. You rely on an old book and, you know, this is the future AI. So how would you counsel someone to build a bridge with people who might have that kind of viewpoint?
1: Oh, yes, sir. Well, I could only give you uh, my best thoughts on that. I don't know the answer, (laughs) but what I would say is to somehow bifurcate those and let them think that AI is the future because, the bigger problem is not whether or not AI is the future, it's that they think that Christianity is outdated. <laughs> mm. And so I would try to focus in on that. And, and first of all, um, I would want to determine maybe from a side angle, is this just a smoke screen? Like they just don't want to talk about religion and this is their excuse for that. Uh, because if it's just a smoke screen and they're not really interested, it's, it's very hard to dig deeper. But if that really is an objection, that they really think Christianity is outdated, then then I would try to ask, well, what, you know, explain that a little bit, like, why do you think it's outdated? And I might use some of Tim Keller's great arguments um, that, of course, he's gotten from others as well, but he puts them so well, where he tries to talk about the relevance of Christianity in, in the modern world in his book, Reasons for God, whether he's talking about idolatry or, like, what hell really is or the fact that we can't build our identity on ourselves and we need something outside of ourselves to have a well-founded identity. I really think a lot of Tim Keller's arguments would be relevant to someone who felt um, that Christianity was outdated and they really wanted to learn more. Very good. Thank you.
3: I I think it's interesting that uh, with regard to AI that uh, some very important thinkers on this subject are afraid of AI, and uh, that uh, such a, a you know a created uh, being uh, might be a dangerous being for humanity, and that to me speaks of the the reality of sin, not just in humans, but even the potential of, of what we would call sin in a machine.
1: Oh, and that's a great question. Could a machine sin? <laughs> I that's an excellent question. I do not, I have not thought deeply about that. My initial response would be not, but I, I don't know. That's, that's complicated. I I think my uh you know, my current hope, you know, in regards to artificial robots running around killing everyone is that batteries don't last very long yet. Um, <laughs> and an, an artificial entity would take a lot of power. So I'm slightly hopeful that uh unless the robots figure out how to keep recharging themselves that um they won't take over them. Right, right. In the movie that's always how it happens, right? The kill switch gets turned right. off by the AI and then it's all over. And I I personally think we're we're extraordinarily far from that. I think the bigger danger of AI is whether image like image recognition could be used by an oppressive police state to oppress their citizens even more strictly. I mean, something like 1984 or some, like we already have some really oppressive states in the world, but when you use this AI technology to to monitor people through image recognition and analyzing their data and their phone, and um, that to me is more frightening at this point Mm -hmm. than actual general artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm.
2: Shad, I wonder if we could talk a bit more about um, what I call the golden rule of apologetics, and what I mean by that is, uh, I think Christians need to uh, they need to treat other people's arguments the way they want theirs treated. So it's a it is a it is an application of the golden rule, treating other people the way you want to be treated, and and again, I think that ties back to uh, you know to to Darwin and Hinslow. They had a relationship where um, Henslow strongly disagreed with Darwin, and yet he, he had a, a strong sense that I don't want to misrepresent uh, my friend's viewpoints. Um, how do you see that? And um, you know, how, again, how have you tried to navigate that area where you you obviously have real differences with people, uh, but you also want to you want to take their arguments seriously?
1: That's a great question, Ken. And, and I've read lots of great advice on this. So what I'm going to say now is more so just me <laughs> saying what I've heard from many 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 people who are, who are wiser and older than myself, but. I think the the best thing to do here, if, if especially if it's with a friend, is just say if if they want to have the the first question, do they actually want to talk about it? Right? <laughs> uh, you yeah, got assuming that you know you guys are hanging out, having some food, and you're just chatting about it, and he brings your friend brings up a question, then I think uh, or an argument that you disagree with. I think the best thing to do is to restate the argument in the strongest possible terms that you understand, and then ask them. Is that an accurate representation of your argument? No. Um, because even if, uh, Ken, you have many years of experience in apologetics, and I'm sure you could summarize many of the arguments against Christianity very well, but it's still possible that the person you're talking to may not feel that the way you represented it is exactly the way they think about it, because different people think differently, right? And they may not, this person may not even fully understand the argument. And so what you need to get at is what is this specific human made in God's image? What do they think? And and what do, what do they feel is an accurate representation of their arguments? And then you really have to work within their paradigm and and meet them where they're at. Um, and I'm not saying I'm good at this, but, but I, I strive to do it better. It's very difficult, but meet them where they're at and then move them one step, you know, closer to you, um, to the truth, hopefully not just to us, but to to Jesus and to the truth.
2: Now, what about, uh, you mentioned Pascal in in the Um, uh, What? Who are some of your favorite Christian authors, either in the past or in the present? What are some voices that have influenced you?
1: Yeah, Ken. That's a great question. So yeah, C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton are classics uh, just for a little of fun. I love G.K. Chesterton's essay on running after one's hat. Um, you can't. It, it's so amusing. He, he talks about uh, enjoying even the seemingly difficult things of life, whether it's opening a stuck drawer or uh, standing at the train station. I love that essay. I love Chesterton. I love his humor. George MacDonald is a classic. Um, I really enjoy his book, a book of strife in the form of the diary of an old soul. And it's really just, um, him writing poems to God as he grows older. And I just find that very rich, the practice of the presence of God by brother Lawrence, um, love that book, Lord of the Rings and Lord of the Rings. I find to be one of the most rereadable, um, fantasy books that there is. It's just so deep. Uh, I feel like a lot of books, you read them. It's hard for me to reread them soon, but Lord of the Rings, I can really just read over and over. Uh, and then a, fu- a book that most people may not say, but I think is is challenging, I would say, is The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. And this it's an older book from the 1800s, but it's a semi-biographical account's of his experience growing up in like an Anglican family through four generations. And I will say, Ken, in that book, there's not a single accurately represented Christian. However, his critiques of the church and of hypocrisy are just so stinging. He has one quote where he describes these Christian villagers, and he says they were haters of all that was unfamiliar they would be equally horrified at hearing the Christian religion doubted and at seeing it practiced. And man, that's painful. (laughs) And I think that's something we all so just I find that book very challenging. I like Utopia by Sir Thomas More. I just remember uh, being driving up to my uncle's farm over Thanksgiving. My dad was driving and I was just reading that book in the back one time. And um, yeah, it's the first book to talk about the idea of utopia, but that's a really fascinating commentary on society and culture um, and Pascal's uh, pincies. And then I, I love a guy, Steve Gregg. He's not famous, but um, all his stuff is free except his books. But he has a couple books, one on Revelation and one on three views of hell, The uh, mm-hmm. thenarrowpath.com. And um, he helped me. There are other good books on those topics, but he really helped me process those. Probably five nice. or ten years ago now. So those are some of my favorite books. I love to read. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> obviously, that's great. Ooh. Well, you mentioned uh, you mentioned something yesterday when we were t- chatting a bit uh, that. That Darwin seemed to have an envy of physics, and since we've got our uh, our physics expert here, Dave Rogstad, and <laughs> and on this show we all envy Dave as the physicist. <laughs> yes. d- tell us a little bit about that before our time gets away.
1: Yes, Ken. So this was something I read uh, when I was preparing to d- to talk about Henslow, about Darwin's life, and and what the article said, and and um. I don't know all the sources here, but it makes sense because Darwin does have a quote in On the Origin of Species, where he talks about Newton's laws for planetary motion. And um, basically, Darwin wanted to find fundamental laws for biology. He was a biologist. He saw the physicist and the chemist, and they were coming up with all these fundamental laws, and he wanted to do the same thing for biology. But one of his struggles was... If you leave God's intervention in history in the equation, you can't know exactly when he intervened because it's not the type of thing you can measure. So if you let God intervene, it's really hard to find those fundamental laws and have the equivalent between physics and biology. And so part of what Darwin was doing was by by having this uh, natural law view that humans evolved entirely through natural law without any intervention from god is that darwin wanted to have these fundamental laws just just like in physics
2: yeah see dave we there we all have that envy for physics <laughs> um,
3: <laughs> actually um you know this reminds me of uh, my recent reading of fuzz re- uh, newest book called uh, fit for a purpose oh yes in, <laughs> there, in there he really uh, delves into the very deep uh, coincidences that are present within uh, the chemicals that make up life and all the processes. And it's, it's an amazing book. To me, it's a, a seminal in revealing God's involvement in biological systems.
2: Well, well, Sean, tell us, uh, tell our listeners how they can learn more about you. If they want to read what you've written or follow you, where can they go to? Um, what is available?
1: Certainly can. So I have a blog at faith to It's exactly how you think faith to knowledge all spelled out. My Twitter handle is faith to knowledge, K N L G. And uh, yeah, if you want to check out, I blog, uh, a different variety of topics from science and religion to devotions to apologetics. Um, so yeah, if they want, they can uh, check that out. How, how
2: about your family? Tell us a little bit about your family. What do you do for entertainment? Uh, tell us a little bit.
1: Oh yeah. So, I mean, uh, I guess I grew up in, uh, Tennessee. My father is a doctor, um, a medical doctor. So, Um, And I always one thing I always remember about my dad is he just always prayed every single time he prays, you know, Lord, your will be done every time we ate, every time he did anything. And I think, uh, you know, my dad, uh, I never I I always understood the most fundamental part of prayer just because I always heard him pray that um, and he really believed it. I mean, when he there was a time that he lost his job. And he didn't he wasn't afraid. I mean, he really just had peace and he waited and he prayed and God gave him. I mean, it really worked out well. And just seeing his faith is great Um, in terms of what I do in my free time. I love to play soccer, watch soccer uh, when I get a chance. Um, I I started playing pickleball recently. That's pretty fun (laughs) with some guys at church. Uh, Love to read books, listen to podcasts. Uh, My wife and I love to travel. Um, We just got back from Canada. So that was a great trip, uh, seeing some things there. So uh, yeah.
2: Well, this <laughs> is children. Do you have children?
1: Uh, no kids yet.
2: OK. Well, Sean, this has really been a, a pleasure for us to have you. Thank you for coming and serving as a visiting scholar. I, I know uh, tomorrow you're going to give a talk to the staff. So it's it's really been great to, to be able to interact. Uh, Joe, t- tell our listeners a little bit about some of these articles that Sean has uh, written for Voices. Yeah, uh, we have a channel, a blog channel here at RTB on our site called
0: Voices, where we feature the blog articles of our visiting scholars. And Sean, you've written at least five that I'm aware of that we've posted, uh, you know, in the last year or so. Uh, let me give a couple of titles just to whet the appetite. Why Google's LAMDA AI is not sentient and why it matters. We talked about that one. Here's one we didn't talk about, but uh, I'm sure people will be interested in. Mythical hero or wizard Lord, who is Jesus to Jordan Peterson? So wow. I'm sure that one will yes, get some. Yes, that was a fun one. Yeah. Heaven and the hiddenness of God. We talked about that a little bit. Uh, and also we talked about uh, this one, how Darwin's lifelong mentor united science and faith. So people can check that one out and get the details. And then uh, one more fixing bias in artificial intelligence can't fix human bias. So uh, great stuff there. Uh, Hopefully people will uh, uh, enjoy those and benefit from them. If you just go on our site, reasons.org, I believe if you do the slash team and then slash Sean H, and your name is spelled O-E-S-C-H, that should get you to this page. So thanks for writing those. And it's been a pleasure having you on our podcast.
1: Well, thanks, Joe. And thanks for all that you do uh, to make all this possible.
0: All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up uh, for this podcast. If you don't subscribe, you can get the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean and Spotify, and you'll get an episode delivered to you each week. For the team, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening, and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking.
3: Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow reasons to believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.